listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 16th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. NATO ambassadors consider their response to yesterday's apparent inadvertent bombing of Poland. Donald Trump steps up for a third swing at winning the popular vote. And are we yet ready to hand broadcast media over to machines? I'm Andrew Muller, or am I? The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Quentin Peel will discuss the day's big stories. And we'll hear from the former Hungarian MP Susanna Zelenyi about her new book chronicling the descent of her former comrade Viktor Orban into paranoid populism. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by the writer and broadcaster Yasmin Abdul-Majid and by Quentin Peel, Associate Fellow with the Europe Programme at Chatham House. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi. Um, as we were just discussing, and this is the bit where I am basically extending the pre-show chat into the light introductory banter at the top of the program. You, Yasmin, are going to Vilnius for Christmas. Yes, I'm doing a residency uh, in Lithuania in Vilnius for the month of December, working yeah, as one does on the novel. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, who will see, we'll see what happens if, you know, when I'm next on in January, inshallah, if the novel is done, I'll be able to talk about it. If not, I just will never mention it again. W- one of the greatest ever private eye cartoons is that one of two men at a party, one saying to the other, I'm writing a novel, and the other one replying, really, neither am I. Um, <laughs> Quentin, do you, do you have any exciting, exotic, or indeed literary Christmas plans? Uh, Is it too mm. early to be talking about Christmas plans? Almost certainly, but we're on a roll now. No, I don't, but I've just been to Strasbourg, where I went to a very, very fancy, sort of reassuring right. um conference on the future of democracy where there was a really good gathering of young people even if everybody was feeling or a little bit downhearted was it actually billed as a reassuring conference i quite like that idea uh not really no just like a big gathering of basically upbeat optimistic people who'll just go it's it's it'll be fine i'd sign up for that i went to expecting it to be really glum and it was not quite as glum as i thought it was going to be well, starting in, well, staying in Europe for our first item, uh, today in Brussels, NATO ambassadors have been meeting to consider responses to last night's incident in which a missile landed on a Polish village, killing two people. In the last few hours, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg has said that it looks likelier than not that the missile was fired by Ukraine in a bid to bring down one of the dozens of missiles fired at Ukraine by Russia yesterday. Earlier today on the briefing, I was joined here in the studio by Sir Richard Sheriff, retired British general and NATO's former Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe. Here is a bit of what he had to say. We should remember this was a brutal onslaught by Mm. Russian missiles yet again on Ukraine. Uh, I think we should also add good for Ukraine that the the, the number shot down was much higher proportionately than on previous, which shows that the uh, arguably that the air defense systems are, are getting through and are having an effect. I think the message it sends, though, is the West has got to double down not only on providing the means, the military means to allow Ukraine to defend itself and to retake its territory. But the West, NATO, needs to look to its own uh, capabilities and be prepared for the worst case, as indeed I've been saying since the 24th of February. 
That was former Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe General Sir Richard Sheriff speaking to us earlier. For the latest, I'm joined now by Aurélie Pognier, uh, Deputy Editor-in-Chief and a reporter on NATO for Brouet de. Uh, first of all, uh, what's your impression of the tone of today's communiques from NATO? Has it mostly been about trying to calm things down? I think it has. I think um, this, is, this has been the way NATO has always operated since the beginning of the war. It's been really about trying not to escalate the situation, about really trying to step back, making sure NATO does not give Russia any sort of pretext to keep attacking Ukraine, keep um, trying and gaining ground and all of this. Stoltenberg stayed very firm. Um, there was no nervousity. There was no, nothing in his tone that could also make us feel like NATO was going to go outside of these parameters that are the ones that they set since the very beginning of the war. And um, he remained very clear this war is illegal and the allies would stand by Ukraine. And um, this is not Ukraine's fault. He was very clear about that, too, about the fact that even if it was um, I mean, if, even if it, it is a, a, a Ukraine missile that did hit um, Poland in the end, which we don't know for sure yet, um, this was Russia's fault uh, because they did uh, start the war at the very beginning. Um, amid that reassurance that Stoltenberg issued and, and calm adherence to the rules is very much Stoltenberg's default setting, did, 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 he, did he say anything that he or NATO as an entity hasn't said before uh, in the last eight or nine months? Not really, no. Um, he's, he's kept a very strict line. Um, everything that we do expect actually out of NATO, um, which is to, or that, that we do expect out of him, it is to make sure that we stay calm. And he mentioned the need for investigation and that we do need attribution um, to know where these missiles come from, um, who fired them, uh, why, um, to where, because they landed in Poland. But they were clearly not meant to land there. Um, and he did mention, um, again, that the, iron, the, the Article 5 uh, clause um, is very important and allies stand together and united against Russia and any other attack that could come their way. Um, this time 24 hours ago, or a little less than 24 hours ago, it did look worryingly like this might become an extremely significant moment uh, in this conflict and not in a good way. Um, is that still possible, though? Could this be, or do you get any sense that NATO were thinking this could be a, some sort of pivotal moment which enables them either to increase the supply of better uh, surface-to-air capability to Ukraine uh, or, I guess, further ink red lines uh, on Russia's behaviour? I think NATO is going to keep um, delivering um, equipments to Ukraine, even though non-lethal, which has been a very significant um, part of um, the line of NATO since the very beginning. We are not, I mean, NATO is not supporting Ukraine by anything um, related to lethal equipments. Um, I mean, it was, I think... 24 hours ago, I think the, the world was really, really, really worried. Um, could there be um, a world war starting basically tomorrow? And what happened in Poland? And I think we are still asking ourselves, everyone is still asking themselves those questions. And NATO is still as well. Um, everyone keeps mentioning the fact that the investigation is still going on. Everything that we do know is that uh, basically what the Russians said last night is true. <laughs> it, it was not fired by Russia. Um, onto Poland. So this is what we know so far. And I think um, what we learned is um, it's also 
by telling how the Poles reacted and how the West reacted, which was, let's stay calm, let's stay united, everyone stands by Poland, and uh, before escalating and maybe playing the game of, okay, you attack, we're going to reply without really looking into it, then we might as well take a step back and then try and keep our head cool. Aurelie Pounier at Brouet Deux, thank you for joining us. I do want to bring in uh, the panel on this as well. Um, Quentin, first of all, as we were just discussing, it was an extremely uh, anxious moment um, about this time last night, which is not to belittle the seriousness of the event. Two people died uh, and considerable damage was done to an entirely blameless Polish village. But does this or should this re-emphasise the danger here of, well, escalation by accident? Yes, I'm sure that that is is a real possibility and and therefore that's why perhaps people overreacted. I mean, to be absolutely honest, right from the start, I thought, hang on, this doesn't really sound like a deliberate onslaught Mm. on Poland. Um, So I think that what we've seen from NATO has been quite an anxiety not to go down the Article 5 route. We've got to all gang together and, and attack Russia. Um, so they, they were pretty quick, really, all things considered, to row back and say, whoops, this isn't a Russian attack. And, and Yasmin, just to talk about Ukraine's reaction, and with all due acknowledgement of the fact that they have every reason uh, to have entirely run out of patience with this entire scenario, a couple of NATO, uh, Ukrainian officials rather, did jump the gun somewhat uh, yesterday, saying that this was uh, you know, a deliberate attempt by Russia to escalate, etc., etc. Etc. Et Does Ukraine, though, have kind of an opportunity here to, uh, I guess, further entrench themselves on the moral high ground by saying, yes, that was us, it was a mistake, we are terribly sorry, at which point they are entitled to make the point that the only reason we launched the thing was that hundreds of missiles were being launched at us? Well, Ukraine sort of has the moral high ground already, right? Mm. They've they've sort of, and they've been coming from a position of, we have been invaded. This is an illegal war. All we want to do is, you know, Zelensky sort of saying, we want peace. And and the question of what victory looks like Mm. um, is still something that is is being negotiated to some extent. But it is, you, you know... Ukraine is in the position of constantly defending itself, whether or not they will sort of put their hands up and say, you know, this is this was 100 percent us. It depends on, I think, how the investigation goes. But I also think that it is an opportunity perhaps for them to continue to put pressure on the West and on NATO. And of course, NATO, I mean, not wanting to escalate. I think it is it's it's a real challenge at the moment for all of the leaders in NATO, or all of the countries in NATO because everybody is dealing with their own domestic challenges. Mm-hmm. And I think there is very little appetite for it to, to escalate in any way. So, I mean, yes, there is an opportunity, but in a sense, part of me thinks everybody kind of wants this to go away. I don't even think Putin would be interested necessarily in an escalation to this extent. So so perhaps it was in everybody's interest to sort of say, all right, let's let's take a deep breath, as you know, as the previous um speaker was saying, take a deep breath and and take stock again of where we are. And, you know, Putin is on the back foot at the moment. Um and so there is this opportunity, I think, you know, to again ask like what do we want what do we want the resolution of this to look like well let's move along with due trepidation and reluctance to the united states where former president donald trump waddled back onto the political stage last night seeking an encore here is an excerpt of what he had to burble 
Together, we will be taking on the most corrupt forces and entrenched interests imaginable. Our country is in a horrible state. We're in grave trouble. This is not a task for a politician or a conventional candidate. This is a task for a great movement that embodies the courage, confidence, and the spirit of the American people. This is a movement. This is not for any one individual. This is a job for tens of millions of proud people working together from all across the land and from all walks of life, young and old, black and white, Hispanic and Asian, many of whom we have brought together for the very, very first time. Only a couple of weeks ago, Trump would have imagined delivering this speech against the backdrop of a Republican triumph in last week's midterm elections, led by his personally endorsed vanguard of cranks, kooks, headbangers and weirdos. This, however, largely declined to occur. Indeed, the biggest winner of the midterms was Trump's likeliest rival for the GOP nomination, fellow Florida man, Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, Yasmin, first of all, are you excited to have Donald Trump back? Oh, how fun. I mean, even just listening to that little excerpt, it may, I, I almost, it's almost a, a, a satire of itself in a way. <laughs> like, I'm like, is this a sketch? You know, is this? And and you're like, oh, are we going to have to be in the position of discussing this man again? You know, mm-hmm. take it, the, the amount of airtime. Um, I, I, I was summoned back to four years ago when I was sitting almost certainly in this exact chair, confidently pro- proclaiming, this is going nowhere. This- <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. I mean, it is, it is also, I mean, you know, as you say, it was meant to be a bit against the backdrop of people predicting a red wave. I think it was described as a red uh, ripple, but I, I like to think of it as more of a red dripple um, uh, or dribble, really. But it is interesting to think, you know, a lot of the Republicans um, had been sort of saying to Donald Trump, you know, please uh, delay your announcement to run again. And and he wasn't really interested in that. And there is, unfortunately, whether we like it or not, there is a strong base. And it is possible, quite possible, that he will be elected again as the Republican nominee, whether or not, um, you know, the Ron DeSantis or as, you know, Trump calls them, DeSanctimonious, I mean, or will will be able to um, be a worthy challenger, will be able to take enough of his uh, primary votes away remains to be seen. Ron DeSantis is still very untested in the national, you know, in Florida, he's very, very popular and was came back on a landslide, but, you know, untested in the national um, electorate. However, you know, it is concerning because I don't think the country has changed. I think the last two years with Joe Biden has seen the division sown by Trump become more and more entrenched. And so unfortunately, I'm sort of you know, with trepidation, thinking, oh, gosh, we're back here. Mm. And instead of talking about draining the swamp, we're talking about whether, you know, the election, we we have to entertain conversations about electoral fraud and and all of these yeah, very. I mean, speaking of saving democracy, Quentin, I think you're just like, oh my gosh, how do we even conduct a conversation when, when the the vote two years ago is considered um, by the person who could be the Republican nominee um, non-existent or 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 a lie? And Quentin, what do you think his chances are? Bookmakers, for what they're 
well, for what the opinions of their betters are worth, now have Trump actually slightly second favourite behind DeSantis. He didn't face as obviously a stronger contender for on the Republican. I mean, four years ago, he was up against an absolute clown car uh, of, of Republican nominees, uh, some actually even by some measurements more preposterous than Trump. There was a Florida governor in the mix, of course, Jeb Bush, but, but DeSantis seems a, a tougher nut for Trump to crack, especially as DeSantis can now make the case that Florida used to be a swing state, and now it's not. DeSantis can show he's a winner Mm. because of his result, whereas Trump is actually starting to look a bit limp. And even within He's, the... He sounded a bit wrung out in that clip, I he, thought. He rambled on mm. for an hour. Apparently, an hour. people were trying to leave after half an hour and the security guards <laughs> wouldn't let them out. Oh, that is embarrassing. Um, you know, I think that there is quite a wobble within the Republican Party, precisely because the midterms have been a big disappointment. That was one of the reasons why my little conference in Strasbourg cheered up, because they thought, hey, the midterms show that the loonies are no longer so likely to really dictate what's going to happen in America. So I actually, I'm a little bit more sanguine about the the democratic process in America. I think that the, the election deniers, the democracy deniers are on the back foot again. Uh, yes, I mean, there's been a, a notably equivocal reaction by what we might think of now as, and it's weird to talk about Fox and the New York Post as this, the sort of more orthodox conservative media, because obviously there is now a whole ecosystem way further out on the fringes, which is obviously all aboard for Trump. But Fox News kind of zoned out of his address when he started unravelling somewhat. The New York Post, uh, a newspaper I'm not always keen to quote or endorse, but they relegated it to a subhead along the bottom of the front page, which was Florida Man Makes Announcement. Wow. Um, and and the, 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 the small copy inside on page 26 uh, referred to him as a retiree and an avid golfer. Wow. You can really see the steam coming out of his ears, <laughs> right, out of Donald Trump's ears. I think what's interesting as well is is Donald Trump will be um, trying to get re-elected without the Murdoch press behind him, you know, mm. and so he's fallen out um, with the Murdoch press. And and quite, you know, the 2016 campaign was very much supported by Fox News and and by, you know, the, the sort of the talking heads repeating his lines and reinforcing, you know, whatever messages that he puts forward. So it will be interesting to see who they support more, who they who they sort of push their viewers um, to get behind. But it will be more challenging. Also, you know, until this moment, I don't believe he's been reinstated on Twitter. You know, who knows what Elon Musk will do. Um, but the it is a very different situation um, in 2022 than it was you know, in 2016. So perhaps, you know, perhaps it's a little bit of hope. Uh, an illustration, though, Quentin, of the fact that some politicians, although we did hear there from a former actual president of the United States claiming he wasn't a politician, uh, but some politicians really do struggle to know when the jig is up. Uh, they do, yes. And I think that I, I thought that Trump would be so hypersensitive that he would realise that the game was up and therefore not do what he's just done and throw his hat back in the ring. But in fact, he seems to be so thick-skinned that he hasn't seen the damage coming. And that has happened to quite a lot of, lot of people in history. It's a very hard thing to get back into the game. I think he misses being relevant and misses being in the limelight. I think the, the sort of 
position of being president gave him, you know, it's the ultimate reality TV show for him. <laughs> and so he, I think there is something about him not being able to, to sort of be in the limelight and, and sort of have uh, the millions of adoring fans cons- and because a lot of his platforms were taken away. So I think part of it is actually wanting to be like, look, l- all the media is talking about me. I'm as relevant and as important. I don't think he actually liked doing the governing, but he liked being president. And that's, I think, what when people come back time and time again, I think ultimately they love that position. And we've just seen Boris Johnson here look like he was going to come back in and then suddenly bottle out of it at the last minute. Cutting uh, short that holiday of his. Yeah. They, they should just do what every other grouchy white guy with a fevered ego does and start a podcast. Um, <laughs> we will move along to Sharm El Sheikh, where COP27 is ongoing. And at least one prominent theme is emerging, that of climate reparations. The idea here is that the rich countries, which have benefited from the industrialization which has caused climate change, should punt some of that wealth to the poorer countries which find themselves on the receiving end of climate change. At COP27 so far, 75.8 million US dollars have been pledged in so-called loss and damage payments, certainly better than nothing, but not much at all when compared to, for example, the damage done by the colossal floods which swamped Pakistan earlier this year. Um, Yasmin, the The idea itself, we will deal with the practicality shortly, we've got a few minutes, how hard can this be? But the idea itself, is it fair enough? I think the question of climate justice and and framing it as a question of justice, I think is is something that has obviously, (coughs) you know, essentially most of the global south or what would be also called the developing countries sort of very strongly behind it. I mean, they fought for this, for the idea of loss and damages to be on the agenda and they fought quite hard. Mm. And I think it actually delayed the beginning of COP. And so, and this is something that, you know, some countries like the Pacific countries have been talking about climate justice or reparations for three decades. So this is the first time and perhaps not, perhaps you know, supported by the fact that it is the first COP in Africa. It's the first time this has been able to be put very squarely on on the agenda. I, you know, as somebody who is a believer in justice kind of more broadly, I think it is a very at least fair thing to be placed on the agenda Mm. because, you know, the countries, I mean, I think the 23 richest countries are responsible for 50% of carbon emissions and and they are benefiting, you know, these top rich countries are benefiting from the industrialization process and so on. And a lot of that wealth was extracted from these global South countries. And they are still, you know, not only unable to deal with the effects of climate change, the drought and the floods and so on, but it also stops them from being able to catch up in any way. And I mean, you know, at the moment, you've got all like the Horn of Africa facing drought and intense famine. And the other thing, you know, part of my thinking is, if you're not going to pay up now, you're going to see, if you think that if Europe thinks the refugee issue is bad now, mm-hmm. when hundreds of millions of people no longer have inhabitable land, they're going to look for somewhere else to go. So not doing something about it now is really just kicking the can down the road. This is a, a, a case that we have, or that I've tried to put to various guests on these shows before, the idea of, uh, and you could think of this as foreign aid, as just a massive demonstration of self-interest. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad to hear you mention, for instance, the Pacific Islands. I mean, Mm. that's such an obvious case where these poor people are going to lose... It is is literally existential for them. Yeah, Yeah, they're going to lose their islands. And it's 
doesn't cost an arm and a leg to say we'll give them we'll somewhere else to go. It. They haven't raised the ocean's level at all. It's nothing to do with them. So I think it's a bit of a no-brainer. But I can see that the developed countries are scared oh, yeah. about signing off on a degree of automaticity that, you know, hey, you're going to have to pay up come what may. Because after all, we did our pollution a long time ago. Hey, when was the Industrial Revolution? <laughs> you know, that's that's the well, past. But, but that right there, Yasmin, is going to be part of the problem of if this idea takes hold and there is general agreement that okay this should be a thing uh, we should contribute countries which have suffered should get paid it's how do you decide do you decide who gets paid because it has been a recurring theme from india and china that they don't feel like they should be blamed for any of this because and they've got a case when they say to the developed Western world, look, you had your fun. You did your industrialization. Right. You did your modernizing. Now it's our turn. But India and China are the second and third biggest CO2 emitters. So are they part of the problem or part of a, or should they be part of a solution? It's a really wicked challenge, isn't it? And I think part of it as well is if no quarter is given, then you're not going to be able to progress the conversation at all. We can't have a reasonable conversation about India and China if, you know, the United States, Great Britain, etc., even Australia, don't come to the table and say, we are at least willing to put, you know, enough on the table that this is this is a, a conversation in good faith. And I also think what's fascinating is some of these, you know, Somalia, for example, um, I think the deputy prime minister said that they needed $55 billion over the next 10 years, which is a lot of money, but mm-hmm. a reasonable amount. But they can't eat, they are barred from getting loans because of the IMF sort of debt repayment agreement. And so they structurally are also sort of like uh, in handcuffs because not only because of, you know, other challenges, they're unable to sort of borrow any money. And so where do they turn? Where do these countries turn? So I think that, yes, the conversation about India and China is one thing, but if developed countries aren't, you know, as and in some ways they have the right to be afraid uh, and uh, the other the the other thought i have about the sort of numbers you know, you can you can draw a line or oh, some connection between the conversation that black americans have about you know reparations mm-hmm. for slavery and so on that is also a wicked a wicked number to come up with. How do you quantify that level of um, trauma and so on? However, we have to begin by saying, okay, an injustice has been done. We are going to do something about it. If that is where the conversation begins, then you can start talking about practicalities. Well, let's move along now to one of the everyday miracles to which modern technology has accustomed us is possibly the most marvellous. This is translation software, especially to we who can recall agonisingly reciting syllables from a Bulgarian phrasebook in the hope of receiving directions to Platform 3 and not a smack in the mouth. We can now glean at least the gist of articles in any of the world's newspapers and avoid, when ordering from a menu written in foreign, moose fat fried in mayonnaise. If it turns out that actually is a thing and is delicious, don't write I don't care. However, Bloomberg are taking a fate-tempting next step by announcing that it will rely on artificial intelligence to translate broadcast content for its Spanish-speaking audiences. Quentin, what could possibly go wrong? Oh, I tried <laughs> listening into it, and it just does still sound... They say they could put emotion into it and everything else. It doesn't. It sounds <clears throat> dull. I want radio to be fun. I want to hear the laughter. I want you know, is AI going to giggle? No, I don't well, think it is. See, but this is the thing, Yasmin. It 
probably will. This stuff is still at quite an early stage. It is getting better and better, possibly somewhat guiltily. I will admit to being one of those journalists who just every time I run a transcription file through Otter, it's just (laughs) like, think, which isn't perfect, but oh my God. It gets you somewhere. As a much younger journalist, years before any of this stuff was even thought of, the amount of my life I have spent meticulously, laboriously, and weeping with boredom transcribing conversations I've already had. But Quentin edges us towards an interesting question. If we get to a point, and we probably will, where written prose and even perhaps spoken word is not all that much different from actual human beings, will people still want to listen to it? Or do people still want to hear and read things where they think, this is one of my fellow creatures? The thought that I had is, as we're talking about this, I don't know if you've seen the the AI art, the sort of mach- there's essentially, and I mm-hmm. cannot remember the name, where you sort of plug in a few words and it will produce a, an AI-created image. They all look like those murals that Donald Trump fans have on the back of their cars, though. <laughs> yes, but also, you know, it is, it's, it's challenging our idea of what art is, of what, you know, conversation looks like. And, and I do think, I think that, Perhaps, if I may broadly say, you know, the, the, the generations that grew up in an analog world or, you know, I'm a millennial, I grew up in, in sort of a pre and post internet age. I think we have a different relationship to, um, to, to machine learning, to stuff that is produced by computers, because I, I think younger generations have if not the same relationship um, or if not the same expectations, they have a relationship with content created by computers that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't appreciate what is created by humans as well. So I think rather than us seeing it as a cannibalization of what's already out there, perhaps it's, you know, in addition to, and perhaps there is creativity in being able to engage with what, you know, AI can produce and machine learning can produce, as well as, you know, what human beings can can also chat about on the radio. Uh, But is there a potential problem here for Bloomberg? And I am sure, at least I hope, Quentin, that Bloomberg will have thought of this. It's not beyond the realms uh, of possibility that a a mistranslation could not merely be, you know, embarrassing and amusing, but everybody sort of laughs it off. But, you know, actually potentially dangerous. If if you are trafficking in actual proper real-time information which people take seriously... And moving markets, perhaps. Well, indeed I mean, so. you would think that the AI would be instructed in sort of every particular ramification, but it loses out. Actually, I love the mistakes that can be made when you're listening to interpreter. And uh, it that's the fun part of it as a human being. So I, I'd be just a little bit chilled by the thought that it was a machine translating. I think the, the London-based startup that Bloomberg is working with have said that, you know, there will be a translation and there will be people who sort of fact check and quality assure and so on. And so perhaps what it is is, rather than replacing it, sort of augmenting in the same way that you might use Otter to translate and so on. Maybe it's about how do we make our lives slightly easier? They it, actually said they were going to check for emotion. Has oh, it got it? the yes. emotion yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But hang on. What can... Do you know those wonderful interpreters you get, the, the sign language ones behind politicians they're sometimes? Fabulous. I love watching them because they're so full of gestures and excitement. We wouldn't get that from AI. And, and also from AI, you definitely wouldn't get the equivalent of that bloke who 
who did Mandela's funeral, despite the fact that he didn't know any sign language whatsoever. Just thought, no worries, I can busk this. It's just no, expression, no right? No one's watching. I'll totally get away with this. Brilliant. Genuinely, that, 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 that man is a hero. I, I draw upon his example every time I think I'm doing anything where I'm slightly out of my depth. I just think, there is what to aim at. But you know, you, could we get the, the nightmarish dystopian prospect where you get AI software actually building in the human frailty and building in the mistakes Somebody and idiosyncrasies? Somebody hacks into the software. And, oh, my Lord. Yeah. Now we're in the realm of, have you seen the BBC drama The Capture? I don't know if I either of not. you... Not it's, oh my, well, if be gird your loins because it's it is it's a little too close to a dystopia that is potentially possible with deep fakes and so on uh-uh. so you know who knows what the next the next decade will have but, in store but just finally i want to pick up on that thing you were saying about upcoming generations and perhaps their more sort of relaxed attitude to dealing with this stuff and whether we do still need to know that there is a human in there somewhere, even if that makes things perhaps not as efficient and more prone to mishap. And the example I was thinking of, which I wanted to put to you as a dyed-in-the-wool petrol head, you could, for example, I'm sure, make Formula One faster and safer by just not having humans driving the cars and doing it all remotely. But no one's going to watch that, are they? No. And for for people who are listening in, I've got a very sad pout on my face at the thought of, <laughs> at the thought of essentially like remote-controlled vehicles. Sort yeah. Of just, yeah, you're right. And, and maybe... You know, maybe this is kind of the limit with technology. Technology, you, you know, the tech leaders will constantly say we will improve things by adding more tech. But at some point, you you know, human connection is irreplaceable. And and this is something I think we've seen over the course of the the pandemic is we spent about two years communicating through technology on Zoom and on phone calls and so on. And we thought that that would be just as good, but it actually wasn't. And people were desperate for human connection. What I think is, if we have a moment, what I think is really interesting is a recent report I read about Gen Z was talking about how they feel the sense of loneliness and disconnection because they know how to create community online but have not built the muscle to create community in person. And, And so when they get together, they... They, there's a little bit of anxiety about actually that that's human social interaction. And so how that is going to play out over the next generations, I think, will be very interesting. Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Quentin Peel, thank you both for joining us. Finally on today's show, listeners with longish memories of Hungarian politics will be aware that Hungary's long-serving Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, has undertaken quite the journey to his present position on the bellicose nationalist populist right. Back in the late 80s and early 90s, Orban and his party, Fidesz, were regarded as the Western-facing liberal future of Eastern Europe. Few people have had a closer view of Orban's transformation than Susanna Zelenyi. She too joined Fidesz as communism collapsed in the 1980s, and she too was elected to Hungary's parliament as a 20-something MP in 1990. Zelenyi has chronicled the trajectory of her former ally in a new book, Tainted Democracy, Viktor Orban and the Subversion of Hungary. I spoke to Susanna earlier and began by asking whether Orban really had changed or had just gone where he thought the votes were? Well, I think Fidesz as a young organization and an early party was very, very, very determined to liberal democracy. And we looked ourselves like the main guardian uh, during the the transition. We were very proud to be young, to be the kids of the new age. And uh, we were very tough on the first government when we got in parliament in 1990 and criticized it at every minute when when it seemed that somehow they tried to abuse their power. What made some changes is that, of course, when Fidesz got into the parliament and we got 
access to resources, money practically, and status, we we had to professionalize. So this this movement type of politics didn't really work any longer. Uh, hierarchy was there to set up, and we elected Orban as a first affection leader, and then a party president in 1993. And at both momentum, he was very quick to grab the resources, uh, human resources, financial resources mm. for himself to dominate uh, the discourse, uh, the political discourse first within the party and, and of course, uh, through the party in, in the larger public. And I think that this was really the first conflict of this kind that came from his, his dominant power-related uh, leadership style uh, revealed already in 1991. And the early debates were always all about how to, you know, be a leader. And mm. we criticized Orban to not to be democratic enough. And this actually was very much the case. But what's your sense when you think about his relationship with Hungary, your, your sense of why this has succeeded? What part of the belligerent nationalism he espouses is, is resonating with Hungarian voters? Because clearly it does. He does keep getting elected. Yes. Well, it also goes back to the early 90s when Fidesz was in its early stage a very liberal centrist mm. party, almost almost a, a greenish, uh, socially liberal party. And I believe that, that what the Hungarian political arena became very divided early on, and we were very proud that we were not part of this division, which were actually very historic, uh, went back to, to 100 years ago. So the main ambition of the young Fidesz party was to make the center strong. And uh, this eventually Orban gave up very quickly. And this was a reason why me and many other people actually left the Fidesz party uh, in the mid-90s. And he pulled the party to the right. And with the remaining Fidesz party, he had to make huge compromises to be accepted on the right. And the first thing that the party did is to try to pick up this nationalist sentiment, which was very present mm. in the 1990s on the right among voters and also the political forces and some part of the elite, like in the intellectual elite, um, uh, conservative intellectual elite, the, the Catholic Church. And Fidesz had to make a lot of gestures. So Fidesz actually made itself as a conservative party, like a newcomer with a lot of um, gestures, visible gestures, until by the end of the 90s, Fidesz could make itself settled on the right and become the, the central force on the right political right in Hungary. I mean, your, your book is interesting for all sorts of reasons, not just about Hungarian politics, but because of the, the wide resonances it has. And a lot of Europe and the Western world has been trying to figure out over the last six or seven years, how do you actually take on a, a nationalist populist and defeat them? Now, you had a go at that uh, by going back into Parliament in 2014 uh, as an opposition MP. Uh, did you learn anything from that experience about what works and what doesn't? Yes. Well, it was a, another fantastic experience 
for me in Hungarian politics in a very, very different uh, political context. Politics uh, become very professional mm. by the 2010s and very divided in most of the Central European countries. So traditional political parties become very strong, dominated a lot of resources, financial resources specifically, and also become very strong in, in big part of the country. Politics become also very, uh, the campaign, the American type uh, campaign politics become very prevalent, which is also de very divisive. Politics is basically not about ideologies any longer, but it's about how to catch the attention of the people of the moment. Mm. And and this Fidesz party, very different from the one I left back then, made it in a spectacular success. Of course, it was necessary that the, the socialist-led government failed badly after the 2008 financial crisis. Orban's big landslide victory was a result of the failure of the previous government at the uh, economic crisis. But what I learned in the last years was how easy to make an illiberal state, mm. how just the changing a few rules, mm. uh, like election rules or media rules or advertisement rules, or sitting a couple of people to loyalists to state institutions, it's very easy to, to get rid of checks and balances. And over the time, this is going to be very, in a subtle way. It's not very violent. It's actually mm. not violent at all. It's almost invisible. In a couple of years' time, you just realize you are living in a completely different legal and political environment. And I think this is what everyone can learn from the Hungarian experience, that it's not so visible. There are not big red lines to cross. It's no big you know, riots, it's not violent and, and drastic. It's actually a fine process and you can change the entire political and economic environment very, very quickly, actually. And and the society does not really realize this. Just finally then, do you, and, and focusing again on Hungary, do you have any optimism that this can be turned around, that Hungary can be restored to, well, perhaps something like Fidesz's original idea for what post-communist Hungary could have been? I think that, well, the basic uh, hope is that nothing lasts forever. And Fidesz, with the leadership of Viktor Orban, is, seems very robust. But it's actually a very uh, fragile system because it's very much on one person's rule. And no one can tell, especially not Viktor Orban, what's going to come after him. So I think that they make a lot of investment for the future. But I believe that it's just impossible. What my worry is that, that when so many basic rules are changed and actually under continual changes because there are not fixed rules. The Hungarian constitution was mm. changed, amended 10 times just in the last 10 years. Elections rules were modified uh, more than 20 times in the last 10 years. So the moral compass of people, of the system is, is gone. And this is something which I believe will be very, very difficult to, to set. And we really have to see what is happening in Europe and the West and how liberal democracy is developing or 
how it remains resilient uh, to various efforts which are happening all over the world in these days. That was Susanna Zelenyi speaking to me earlier. Her book is Tainted Democracy, Viktor Orban and the Subversion of Hungary. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Quentin Peel. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Adam Heaton with editing assistance from Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Miller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.